I know you just sat down, but think of the extra calories you're going to burn up. And I know we're social distancing, so you'll have to use your judgment a little bit, but I'm going to ask you a question. And then I want you to say, tell your answer to the person to your right and to your left. And, and, and stay in your little pods. If there's only two of you, then you can just talk to each other. So here's the question. How old would you be if you didn't know how old you were? Okay, give it some thought. How old would you be if you didn't know how old you were? So in other words, throw out your chronicle age and how old do you act? How old do you feel? Go, go, go. I hear a lot of laughing. I see a little bit of finger pointing. I'm going to let you sit down. So you're answering for the person that you talk to or one of the people you talk to. How many of you talk to somebody who felt younger than they are? Just stick your hands up real quick. All right. How many of you talk to someone that felt older than they are? Okay. That's about a 50-50 split. That's about exactly what it was in, in the early service. You know, the simple truth is this. Many people stop living life before they take their last breath. Many tombstones could read, died age 45, buried age 85. Have you met those kind of people? Have you seen those kind of people? Maybe you are one of those kind of people. People who simply stop living. They have given up on life. They just simply exist. They quit enjoying life a long time ago. They don't look for challenges in life anymore. They don't look to enjoy life anymore. They don't look for pleasures in life anymore. They don't try to have a sense of purpose in their lives anymore. They just kind of exist and they kind of have this attitude. Well, the best part of my life is over. Woe is me. Do you know what the Greek word is for that? Baloney. It's baloney. There is no Greek word for that. We shouldn't exist like that. And I don't mean to be morbid this morning, but have you ever thought about how you want to die? So one guy with a wonderful sense of humor, he put it this way. He said, I want to die peacefully like my grandfather did. Not kicking and screaming like everybody else in his car. <laughs> I know, I know. Death's not supposed to be funny, right? So, so quit, quit the jokes. You know, when I ask you how you want to die, here's what I'm really asking you. How do you want to live your life? That's what we're going to talk about this morning. How do you want to live your life? What are you going to do until your heartbeat takes its last beat? How are you going to live the life that God has given you? 
You know, I've reached a point in my life where sometimes I'll be sitting around, especially guys and friends of mine that might be a few years older, and, and they'll ask me, like, when are you going to retire? You know, 65, 68, 70, they'll, they'll ask those kind of questions. And, and while I'm saving for retirement and those kind of things, I have no idea. I mean, I, I'm, I love what I do. I love people. I, 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 there, there are books of the Bible that I still want to preach. You know, there's just lots of things that I want to accomplish. I've got a curious mind. I still want to learn. I enjoy learning new things. There are books to read and worlds to explore so much. Lots of worlds to, to explore. My passion has always been seeing people take God's word and applying it to their lives. And I'm still passionate about that. So I have no idea when I'll call it quits, so to speak, for vocational ministry. And, and I know that at some point my body's going to kind of, you know, tell me differently. Ah, who am I kidding? My body already tells me differently. I'm not, that, that's, there are already things that I can't do physically. But I know down the road there, there are going to be adjustments and, and things that I'm going to have to change a little bit. But I hope to stay engaged and I hope to enjoy life to, to its fullest. I want to follow my dad's example. Let me tell you a little bit about my dad. He passed away almost three years ago. But uh, my dad, he was in the Air Force for 22 years. and we got out of the Air Force, he went to work for the state of Texas as a social worker. And after my dad retired from those two things, he was just always helping people. Just always. I mean, you know, going over to people's houses and, uh, you know, people, mostly people who couldn't afford it. A lot of senior adults, you know, and, and maybe he'd put in a new bathroom floor for them where he'd rot it or he'd repair a faucet or change out a faucet. Just always doing something. And he was well into his eight, 70s and still going strong doing this kind of stuff. And eventually Alzheimer's caught up with him. But just always doing. I mean, even when I'd come home for a visit, they lived in Texas. And, and he, would, he would ask me, he'd say, uh, hey, I'm going to help the old people. Like he wasn't one of them. You know, he's 75 or whatever. I'm going to help the old people. You want to go with me? And you know what he meant by that? I want to go help the old people? Is that he didn't want to become... One of those old, grouchy, old people. That's, that's what he was talking about. You know, those kinds of people, and it's an attitude, not a chronological age, who just believed their best days were behind them. My dad wasn't going to be like that. He was going to keep doing, and he was going to keep engaging in life, and he was finding new purposes and new ways of, of helping people. That's just who he was. And I hope to follow that legacy. And then I'll say this. I don't plan on spending my retirement years hanging out with old people. Now, don't get offended. It doesn't sound like what it sounds like. I like old people. I like hanging out with old people. What I mean is I don't plan on spending time with people, regardless of their chrono chronological age, who just want to sit around and gripe and complain and talk about the good old days. And I've known people that were in their 40s that do that, kind of like we talked about a while ago, or some of them even in their 30s. That's what I mean when, when I say that. People who just already have one foot in the grave and in life is just, you know, the best parts of life are already gone. I'm not, that, those are the kinds of people I'm not going to hang out with regardless of their chronological age. Chuck Swindoll kind of talks about this a little bit. And he gives three characteristics 
of these types of people. Again, it doesn't have really anything to do with, with chronological age. I just used that phrase because I knew it would get your attention. But the first one is this. He says, those kinds of people are narcissistic. It's all about me. There's this ultra selfish mindset that in effect says, leave, leave me alone. I've earned my right to be miserable. Old narcissists even kind of take a little bit of a different take on it. They think that somehow they paid their dues, that they always deserve to be the first ones in line, that, that they have a sense of entitlement just because they're older. Look, the world is not a country club. We don't pay dues. There, there is no sense of entitlement, so to speak. And by the way, the church isn't a country club either. And we don't pay dues at church. And how long you've been a member at Burning Bush Baptist Church, while we appreciate how long you've been here, I mean, we really do, it doesn't give you special privileges. It doesn't give you a sense of entitlement. You're a member just like anybody else. You can't find that you get special privileges anywhere in, in Scripture. In fact, I'll even say this to really throw you for a loop. The Bible never even mentions church membership. Do you realize that? Okay, we'll stop. I'm not going to go off and all that stuff. I'll get myself in a lot of trouble. But folks, life is a gift. It is a privilege that God gives us to live life. To see what God has for us as, as we journey through life. And, and some people just never get to see that. And then narcissism leads to the second one. It's pessimism. And I don't know that I need to, to say a whole lot about that. Pessimistic people, they just moan and complain all the time. I'm over the hill. I've been kicked out. Nobody cares what I think anymore. So I'm just quitting. I don't have any purpose anymore. My future is bleak. That, that type of attitude. And I'll be honest with you. I don't understand how people can live like that. I really don't. I, 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 just, I just don't get it. I mean, I do get that sometimes health challenges come along and things happen in your life where maybe you can't do what you used to do. And I've met people at Burning Bush Baptist and in life in general that that has happened to them. And I have seen them reinvent themselves and repurpose themselves and, and just totally change themselves. And instead of just becoming pessimist and woe is me, they found new purposes and new joy in life. I admire that. I respect that. That's how I want to be. Then thirdly, pessimism leads to fatalism. Have you ever met those people that they, they live like death is their destination? Like the only thing they're looking forward to is, 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 is a cemetery or an urn. And, and, and that just seems to be it. They have no hope. They have no energy. They can't laugh anymore at themselves or, or anything else. Nothing interests them anymore. Just gloom and doom, woe is me. No sense of uh, any kind of purpose. Hey, no thanks. That, that, that's not for me. I hope it's not for you. And so this morning, we're going to look at a guy in Scripture who doesn't fit any of those three categories that I just talked about. His name is Abraham. And of course, we've been talking about Abraham for 12, 13, I guess it's 13 chapters of Genesis. Genesis chapter 12 through chapter 25. We've almost gone verse by verse studying Abraham. And we started out last summer and we, and we talked about how, you know, Abraham was this guy. And the title of the series is Believing in God When Life Doesn't Work. 
you know, a lot of times things aren't working in your life and it gets hard to believe in God. And Abraham, certainly, we could see that in his life. And then sometime in September, we started talking about the family part of Abraham's life and the things that we could learn about, about his family that we could apply to our own lives. And so now we're at the end. Genesis chapter 25 is the end of Abraham's life. And again, I don't want to talk about the end of your life, but I want to talk about how you're going to live your life. And as we look at Abraham and we start into Genesis chapter 25, Abraham had plenty of reasons to kind of fade into the background. In Genesis chapter 4, as I mentioned to you a few weeks back when I was preaching, uh, his wife Sarah, his wife of 112 years, I mean, that's longer than probably any of us will live. They were married that long. He had buried her. And uh, she was probably um, 127, thereabouts, because they said that you know, most, uh, most brides would get married back then, about 15, 16 years old. And Abraham was 137 at that particular time. And we don't know how long there is between Genesis chapter 24 and Genesis chapter 25. Uh, Abraham, when he buried Sarah, of course, he's grieving for her. We learn that in Genesis chapter 24. And then we get to Genesis chapter 25, and most scholars think it was probably about a five-year span that he grieved for her. And, you know, counselors and people that study this stuff say it takes about three years when somebody loses a spouse to return to some sense of normalcy. Not, Not fully recovered, but some sense of normalcy. But when we get to Genesis chapter 25, when we begin to read it, we can tell that Abraham kind of has a zip in his step again. And he's kind of rebounding. And, you know, golf hadn't been invented yet. Bridge hadn't been invented. So what's Abraham going to do? 142 years old now. Isaac is married. Isaac has taken over the family business. Sarah's gone. So what's he going to do? Guess what? At some point, he comes to his son, Isaac. He said, Isaac, guess what? I'm getting remarried. And Abraham, at the age of 142, takes on a new bride. We read about it in Genesis chapter 25, verse 1. Abraham had taken another wife whose name was Keturah. So that was his new wife's name. She's only mentioned one other place. That's over in the book of 1 Chronicles. But regardless of how often she's mentioned, Abraham fell in love with her and married her, and she became his bride. Now, these kind of things, I know those of you who are romantics, you might have an issue with this. You're thinking, you know, if they were married in 112 years, he should have never fallen in love with anybody else. That his love for Sarah should have meant so much to him that he could never, ever love again. And that somehow remarrying cheapens his love for Sarah. You know, sometimes that happens today. Somebody's spouse dies and they remarry at some point. And, and some people think, well, that's, that's just disrespectful to their, to their spouse. My, uh, one of my brothers, when my mom passed away, my dad remarried. And uh, that was the way he was. He really struggled with that. He said, I just think it's disrespectful for, to mom. And I'm like, you know, he, he, dad's an adult. 
And when mom was alive, they were married 51 years, he was by her side. He, he was faithful. He was loyal. He was devoted to her. And, and, and God took her, and he's still here. And, and if it makes him happy, she's a godly woman, and we need to support him. But he really struggled. My brother really struggled with that. Well, Abraham was like my dad. He, had a, he was loyal. I mean, sure, they had some issues. We've talked about some of those issues. But he was loyal and devoted to her for 112 years. They parented Isaac together. I'm sure, you know, every morning they had coffee and sausage biscuits and enjoyed each other's company before the day started. And then God interrupted that. It wasn't Abraham's fault. God had a, took Sarah home and he had other purposes for Abraham. And Abraham lived another 38 years after she had, she had passed away. And I know that a romantic sometimes is like, oh, it would have been so sweet if he would have just those next 40 years just grieved for her. But God gave him a new wife and a new romance and another godly woman. And I'm sure that kind of put the zip back in his life. I don't know if you've ever... Uh, Met a person that got married later in life. Um, there was a gentleman uh, who was an associate pastor in this, this area. And I can't remember his, his exact age. I was talking to somebody after the early service. I thought he was in his late 80s. They thought he was 94. But anyway, he was up there in years. And uh, just a sharp gentleman. Uh, used to be a professor and, and uh, just sharp as a tack and just a wonderful person to be around. And his wife of, of, of many, many years passed away. And it was one of those kind of long, drawn out, I don't remember if it was Parkinson's or Alzheimer's, some form of dementia. And he was by her side. I mean, it took years. But he was faithful and by her side and took care of her. People brought meals. People prayed. But, but eventually she passed away. And then a few years later, I saw him at a pastor's conference. And he came up to me and he had this big smile on his face. And he was like a giggly teenager. And he goes, guess what? I said, what? He goes, I'm getting remarried. I was like, really? And he goes, yeah. Then he goes, I'm robbing the cradle. <laughs> She's only 72. <laughs> I was so excited for them. And they got married, went to a honeymoon in Hawaii, and last I knew, they were, they were doing fine. And uh, just, just a delightful couple. That's what happened to Abraham. You know, remarries, everything's exciting again. But unlike my pastor friend, God had something else in store for Abraham besides just a new bride. He had some other things for Abraham. I don't know if Abraham thought that they would, uh, he and Katerah would sit on the porch and hold hands in their swing or garden or whatever, but uh, God had other plans for them. And one day, Katerah comes to him and goes, guess what? We're going to have a baby. Imagine, 142 years old, a baby. And Zimran was the baby's name when it was born, and Zimran was not an only child. Five more boys. And scripture kind of indicates that they came quickly, one after the other. And those are just the boys. You know, scriptures, the genealogies don't record the women. So he might have had a bunch of daughters in there too. So anyway, think about this. He and Sarah struggle to have one child. And all at once, like he's sending out birth announcements every 10 or 11 months. I mean, they're just coming one after the other. And, uh, you know... 
we hear about people having children later in life, and maybe some of you have done that. Renee and I were, uh, I was in my 40s when uh, my son Sean was born. Sean just graduated. He, we call it a COVID graduate because he graduated this summer. And, uh, you know, people in the church used to love to tease us about Sean. Oh, you guys are Abraham and Sarah. And they thought they were being so funny. <laughs> I'm just kidding. We knew they were teasing him, and we, 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 we took it in stride. Of course, it wasn't always funny. Some of you have heard me talk about this. One day, uh, by the way, I'm just going to call her out this morning. My wife is in the health care, so she's not felt comfortable coming back to church. But she's here this morning, so she's right back there. Wave at everybody. So glad that she's here this morning. But anyway, one day, Sean was about three weeks old, and she was still kind of in that postpartum blue thing, blues. And... Um, so uh, she went to a, one of those big box stores, and my daughter, Bonnie, who was 15 at the time, went with her, and Sean's in one of those little carriers. He's obviously a newborn, and they're checking out in one of those big box stores, and the cashier looks at Renee and goes, looks at the baby in the carrier and goes, is that your grandchild? <laughs> Renee starts crying. My daughter, Bonnie, who's 15 at the time, she's mad. What does she think I am, some floozy? <laughs> it's not my baby. They both come home upset. So um, Charles Swindoll has some thoughts on Abraham's life, and uh, he was talking about them having children later on in life and how many kids they had and all that kind of stuff, talking about Abraham. And he tells a story about his family. He said, my mother once told me this story. He said, my parents were married in October of 1930, and by the following August, she delivered her first child. So most likely his oldest brother was a um, honeymoon baby. But then he said, a few months later, she was pregnant again and had another child. And then just a few weeks after she had that child, she was pregnant with Chuck. And uh, he said, during that time with two kids, in, two kids in diapers and a third one on the way, she said, my parents went to see my dad's mom and our grandmother on, Chuck, on his dad's side of the family. And he said, now, my dad's mom was just this little four foot six, 85 pounds, soaking wet lady, but she was, had a reputation as being a pistol. And she said she saw the two toddlers running around in diapers and saw my mom waddling around with another child. And she called my dad over and he'd been over his six foot frame and said, yes, ma'am. And she looked at him and said, the Bible says you are to be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth, but God never meant for one woman to do it all. <laughs> well, Abraham and Katara apparently didn't get that memo. And so they're sending out birth announcements left and right. And so here's the question. 142 years old when this starts. So he's kind of, while these kids are being born and being raised, he's going to top 150, 160, 170. He dies at 175 years old. What's he going to do? Is he just going to sit back and let somebody else raise him, let her raise him? How did he stay young? Let me make a few suggestions. By giving driver's education lessons to boys about driving an ox cart by hiking through the woods and teaching them how to hunt, breaking up sibling fights. I grew up in a family of four boys. We fought all the time. Can you imagine six boys? I, am, I can guarantee you there were always fights. 
He would have had to teach them about girls and manners and first dates. I mean, like, you go on that first date, this is how you help a lady up onto your camel, that kind of stuff, you know? <laughs> how to put uh, animal grease into the axles of chariots and ox carts and all that types of things. He would have taught them how to use an abacus and how to, you know, use that in the family business and manage employees and, the, and all the other stuff that went into to the business. And he certainly would have taught them about God. And you know, we don't see all of that in Scripture. You kind of read the white space, so to speak, between verses 1 and verses 5. That little hyphen in there. Have you ever noticed that when you're in cemeteries, when you look at a tombstone, there's always that little hyphen there. It says, born on a certain date, died on a certain date, and then there's the hyphen in the middle. Well, at the end of, toward the end of that hyphen in Abraham's life, he was fully engaged with his family and his kids. He was fully involved, lived a full life. Watch those kids, that, that, that second family, the kids grow up and have more kids. And I realized this morning, as I'm talking about this, some of you thinking, there's no way I want to have kids at 142 years old or 120 or whatever. I understand that. But here's the point. Abraham embraced life, even as he got older. And that's why we all have to be asking that important question. God, what future do you have for me? And it's also important from a theological standpoint to understand that this second family that he has has no effect whatsoever on Isaac's lineage, which eventually Jesus Christ was born into. Theologically, she was... Uh, Katara was like a, a, a second, was like a concubine. She would have always kind of been under. Sarah would have, legally would have always been at the top of the, the, the chart, so to speak, and then she would have been underneath that. So she wouldn't have had quite all the same legal rights as Sarah had, and the same would have uh, been true of her kids. But verses 5 and 6 give us some details about what I just talked about. Abraham left everything he owed to Isaac. But while he was still living, he gave gifts to the sons of his concubines and sent them away from his son Isaac to the land of the east. And so remember Ishmael and Hagar and how Abraham sent them into the desert with no water and no provisions and, and the angel found, found her and, and they're dying. And that was a bad deal on Abraham's part. Well, he didn't make that same mistake with these kids. He provided for them, and he gave them their inheritance while he was still living. And you know, a lot of financial advisors advise that. If you can do it, give away your inheritance while you're still living. And then in verse 7, it tells us that he lived 38 years after Sarah had passed away. And then in verse 8, it reads this way. These are all the years of Abraham's life that he lived, 175 years. Abraham breathed his last and died in a ripe old age, an old man, I want you to notice that last phrase down there. And satisfied with life. You know, the, the 13 chapters that we've looked at in Genesis, that's one of my favorite phrases about Abraham. He died and was satisfied with life. You know what that word satisfied means? It means to be full. It means to be contented. It means to be pleased. He died satisfied. I picture this guy dying with a smile on his face. 
He had lived a great life. He was contented. He didn't die with a bunch of regrets. You know, you meet people and they die with all these regrets. That wasn't him. He was content with the way he lived his life. I picture this old man on his deathbed. And I don't know how it happened, but this is what I picture. And his children and his grandchildren are coming in. And he's hugging them and he's saying last words to them. And he's smiling because he knows he's done well. Not in a bragging way, but he just knows he's pleased God and he's done well. And he's shared his life well. And he's raised his kids the right way. And he can look at his children and his grandchildren. And he's got a clear conscience. And he doesn't have any regrets. He gave of himself and he gave his resources. And he dies satisfied. I hope I'll be able to say that. I hope you do too. We read the last couple verses about Abraham, verses 8 through 10. And it says this. He was gathered to his people. Then his sons Isaac and Ishmael buried him in the cave of Machpelah in the field of Ephron, the son of Zohar, the Hittite. Facing Mamre, the field which Abraham purchased from the sons of Heth, there Abraham was buried with Sarah, his wife. There's another kind of interesting phrase in, in these couple verses. It talks about how they, they gathered, he was gathered to his people. That actually refers to a burial custom where when, when somebody would pass away, they would take the body and they would set it somewhere outside of town. I don't know how they did it, but they would set it somewhere. And then they would allow nature to take its course until all the soft flesh was gone and it was just bones. And then they would gather the bones up And they would take him and bury him in a cave or whatever. In this case, it it appears to be a cave. And they would bury him with the ancestors. In this case, it was Sarah. So that's what that kind of that last passage means or those last couple verses. You know, as I think about Abraham's life over the course of our study, it's obvious that he had his faults. I mean, the title of our series was Believing in God when, When Life Doesn't Work. And there were times that Abraham was absolutely amazing at that. Life, just unbelievable faith. But we also know there were times when he failed miserably. I mean, he was a bona fide liar. I mean, twice we know that for sure. What he did with Hagar was wrong. What he did with Ishmael and Hagar, sending him out in the desert with no food or water, that was an absolute travesty. Should have never happened. But then you just look at the faith that the man had. I mean, he's in God's hall of fame in Hebrews chapter 11. Yeah, he had his faults. We all have faults. But yet his faith, when when life was difficult, and, 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 and the way he finished up his life, I mean, God just blessed him, and then he shared those resources. As we kind of wrap up this series, I just want to kind of share three secrets to finishing life well. And this, I realized this morning, there are lots of people in here. You're not in the autumn or winter of your life. You're in the spring and summer. But this goes for all of us. Things to keep in mind as, as we're moving through life. Number one is this. Every day is an opportunity to live life at its fullest. Every morning when you wake up, God has given you a life. You have an opportunity. You have another day. What are you going to do with it? You have 24 hours to make choices. So you have an opportunity. 
And you can think about that day with excitement and expectation, or you can look at that day with with gloom and doom. It's your choice. And along these lines, choose your friends well. If you hang out with selfish people, chances are you're going to become a selfish person. If their world revolves around themselves, then you're going to become a narcissist. If you choose a bunch of negative friends, then you're going to be a Danny Downer or a Debbie Downer too. Be kind to everybody, but separate yourself from the negative people so you don't become like them. Can I be completely candid with you about something? Somebody said, no, that's too bad. I'm doing it anyway. (laughs) A few years ago, it's five or six years, I just had to make a decision. And some of you are probably going to think poorly of me, especially with me being a pastor, but I hope you'll understand the context. I just made a personal decision that people that just want to whine and complain and be negative all the time, I I don't even know how how else to say this. I'm not going to waste my time with you. I just, I have so much time and I have so much energy and I am not going to waste that time and energy with people that are just always negative and whining. I just had to make that decision because they were just dragging me down and dragging me down. I'd have conversation after conversation with them and just walk away going, oh my goodness. And I just finally made that decision. Does that mean you can't come up to me and we can't disagree on something? Absolutely not. And we can have all kinds of conversations and constructive criticism. And I make mistakes. Don't get me wrong. I'm not saying I don't. But I'm just saying, if you want to be negative and you want to complain and you just want to whine about everything all the time, I don't have time for that. And I just made that decision. You need to make similar decisions. Choose your friends wisely. You're just like me. You have so much time and you have so much energy. Where are you going to spend it? What are you going to spend it on? And by the way, besides choosing your friends wisely, investing your energies wisely, continue to grow. Continue to educate yourself. Read good books. Let your mind grow. Exercise. Eat well. All those types of things as you, as you make the most of the opportunities that God has given you. Satchel Page, he was an African-American pitcher that lived years ago and uh, he once pitched an inning in an exhibition game actually two innings and in 12 pitches he retired and he was 62 years old when he did this he he retired all six batters he faced including striking Hank Aaron out when Hank Aaron was in, in, in almost his prime he was asked after that what his secrets were to his health and his impressive longevity and he offered his six homegrown rules And these are kind of interesting. I just kind of want to share them with you this morning. Now remember, these are his, and he had his unique way of of wording them. He says, if you were six years of age, follow these rules. So he said, avoid fried meats, which anger up the blood. If your stomach disputes you, lie down and pacify it with cold thoughts. I don't know what that means, but it sounds interesting. Keep the juices flowing by jangling around as gently as you can. That, that was how he demonstrated it. It's as close as you'll ever see me to having any kind of dancing or rhythm. 
Go very, this is number four, go very light on vices such as carrying on in society. The societal ramble isn't restful. Here's one. Number five, avoid running at all times. <laughs> Some of you are like, amen. <laughs> number six, don't look back. Someone might be gaining on you. You know, we all get to choose how we respond to disappointments and failures in life. You know, everybody admires Babe Ruth, who retired as the home run king at that time, 714 home runs. Do you know how many times Babe Ruth struck out? 1,313 times. In fact, if you look at the all-time strikeout list, it is littered with names of home run leaders. The top five include Babe Ruth, Alex Rodriguez, Sammy Sosa, uh, Reggie Jackson. You have to hit a lot of balls. You have to swing a lot to do well. Make sure you keep swinging. Make the most of every opportunity. Second one is this. First one, make the most of every opportunity. Second, live a life of generosity. You know, that's one of our values here at Burning Bush. We have three. Be transformed, be engaged, and live a life of, be, be generous. Live a life of, of, of generosity. Abraham was incredibly rich. Rich in livestock and in money and land. He was extremely successful. His business enterprises probably employed thousands of people. And he gave it away. He gave a lot of it away. You remember when Lot left and he gave Lot a big share to go get started? You remember when he got rescued and those people wanted to, he, he told the, the folks that rescued him, keep, keep, keep the spoils, I don't need them, you can have them. You know, he failed miserably setting up Ishmael initially with Hagar, but later in life he helped Ishmael out and he helped out the, he learned and repented of what he had done with Ishmael and he helped out his other kids well and then he gave the remainder of his inheritance to Isaac. Scripture teaches us that when we have extra, it's for us to give away. I think sometimes we think, oh, I have extra. It's for me. No, it's for us to give away. That's what Scripture teaches. I'm not saying that, that we all need to drive old beat-up cars and dumpster dive and buy all our clothes at Goodwill. That's not what I mean. I'm just saying when God blesses us, he wants us to use those resources to help other people, not just hoard it, not just think it's, it's something that we just give to ourselves. Scripture teaches that when you're blessed, you ought to bless others. Depending on what numbers you look at, it, it says that your average Christian gives somewhere between 1% to 4% of their income to you know, discretionary income to help uh, you know, support charities or churches or whatever it is. Just imagine if you just doubled that. If every Christian just went up to 6 or 7 or 8%. Can you imagine how that would change the world? And I know a lot of you give more than that, 10%, and, that, and that's a great number from the Old Testament. That's, that, that's outstanding. But imagine if everybody did that. How it changed the world. How it changed missions. All these parachurch organizations, I'm sure you get stuff all the time from, from parachurch organizations, and they just struggle for money all the time. And if everybody doubled their giving, how much would it change those organizations when they could spend time on their particular ministry instead of fundraising? It would revolutionize them. And that would revolutionize the world. Live a life of generosity. Last one is this. Don't quit. Determine that you will never stop living till somebody puts a mirror under your nose and there's no fog. Don't quit. Don't give up. Never give up. 
Satchel Pages, I mentioned him a while ago. His biographer writes this, and he, he's the one that actually, I meant to mention that earlier. That question I asked you initially, how old would you be if you didn't know how old you were? Satchel Page is the one that originally asked that question. And this is what his biographer writes, and I'm just going to kind of wrap up with this. He says, all his life, Satchel Page was told that black lives matter less than white ones. Satchel would teach the journalist by adding or subtracting years each time they asked his age. Then he asked them, how old would you be if you didn't know how old you were? So I'm going to close with that question again this morning. We started with it, and I'm going to end with it. How old would you be if you didn't know how old you are? Would you pray with me, please? Heavenly Father, we come to you today. and Father, I thank you so much for for the lives of people in the Bible that we can look at. Father, and we can just look at their example. And Father, some of them have warts and stuff, but, but so do we. And Father, some of them were nomadic like Abraham, but we're nomads in a, in a strange land. And Father, I just pray this morning as we wrap up this series that we just ask ourselves some questions. God, what is it you want me to learn from, from this three, four-month study that we've had? God, what is it you want me to learn this morning? How is it you want me to, to live my life? Father, I just pray we're asking that question. Maybe we don't know the answer fully, but I just pray that at least we ask that question. God, what does your future hold for me? How do you want me to live? Father, I pray for our time of commitment this morning. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Would you stand, please? We're just going to have what we call a time of commitment this morning. We want to give you an opportunity to come down here and pray if God's been talking to you about that. And just most of all, I just want to ask you, what is God trying to tell you this morning? Just listen to hear God's word preached for 30 minutes. What is, what is God saying to you? What is, what is he teaching you today? Just ask yourself that as we sing this morning. Thank you for worshiping with us online today. Our prayer is that God has spoken to you. If you have any questions about your spiritual journey or about our church, we encourage you to check out our website, burningbushbaptistchurch.net, or you can contact us at the email that is listed on the bottom of your screen. Have a great week.